Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello, my name is Dr Chris Blackwell. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm going to speak about sleep and depression. Before I get started, I'd just like to make an acknowledgement of country. We are doing this on Gadigal land. I'd like to pay my respect to the elders, um, both past and present, um, of the Gadigal Nation, uh, of the Eora people, and of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders on whose land which we uh, live and work. A few disclaimers and a few of my conflicts. Just to be sure, I'm a general adult psychiatrist. I work in private practice. I'm a clinician. I work at the Wilcock Clinic in Glebe. I also worked formerly at the Neurosleep Clinic, which we had in Camperdown until COVID shut us down. I have my own rooms in Willara. I'm a VMO at the Sydney Clinic over in Bronte when I also chair the MAC there. I'm not an academic and I'm not a real expert, but I do see a lot of patients and I do know a little bit about sleep and a little bit about depression. I have no financial interests apart from the above. I've previously given talks for drug companies. I've eaten drug meals. I've used drug pens, pads, plastic thingies and attended drug company junkets in exotic places. I've been invited to serve on advisory boards but have always declined simply because I am too lazy. I also lecture to psychiatric trainees at the HETI and pre-COVID I used to lead Australia some medical students from time to time from both the University of Sydney and occasionally UNSW. I've sat on a variety of very unglamorous committees uh, and working groups, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, both at state and by national level. I'm just an adult general psychiatrist, not a researcher, not a real expert, but I'm lucky and I work with a group of people who are. I'd like to thank those colleagues, the staff and patients at the Woolcock and elsewhere. And I'd especially like to thank Professor Ron Grunstein, Associate Professor Delwyn Bartlett, Professor Brendan Yee, Keith Wong, Simon Lewis, Steph Banerjee, Amanda Gamble, Di Richards, Sonia Kumar, Keith Johnson, Naresh Mandrati, and Dr. Megan Kalusi, and all my other hardworking physicians, surgeon, dental, uh, and allied health colleagues who work in the multidisciplinary clinic at Woolcock, who've taught me so much. I'd also like to thank my long-suffering family. Well, this was the task I was set. Are sleep problems a trigger or a consequence of depression? And does treating one help the other or should they be treated as two separate conditions? These are just some of the questions. Psychiatrist and sleep expert, well, me anyway, uh, will address as he presents the latest evidence on the interplay between these two conditions and outlines a practical approach to their assessment and management. I'm a clinician, we're gonna talk about what we do. But, of course, it's that elephant again and those visually impaired scientists. Depressive and sleep disorders are intertwined aspects of abnormal biopsychosocial processes that affect the way we feel and function. They affect how we respond to changes, how we respond to losses and challenges at every level of our lives. And there's the famous elephant being examined by the blind man. You all know the paradigm. Anyway, I'm a psychiatrist and so we get to talk to the elephant or about the elephant in the room. I'd like to convince you that you've been working as a sleep doctor for many years, even in general practice. Depression is actually a sleep disorder. 
Sleep abnormalities are part of the diagnosis of all psychiatric disorders, but especially the affective disorders from dysthymia all the way through to major depression. Managing sleep disorders and the abnormalities uh, therein is integral to successfully treating depression. There's a reciprocal relationship. If you can improve people's sleep, you will improve their depression. And if you can improve their depression, you will improve their sleep. Sleep and circadian disorders worsen and are worsened by depression and both cause and mimic depressive disorders. This afternoon, we're going to have a quick refresher on mood disorders, sleep models and concepts, some basic management. And have a quick look at non-drug treatments and drug mechanisms and a little bit on drug choices for various reasons. Now, the nosology of depression. I urge you not to get hung up on this. Psychiatrists spend large parts of their life debating the minutiae of, of psychiatric diagnosis. It is often quite unhelpful. Depressive symptoms, as you know, include anhedonia, anxiety, apathy, agony, awfulness of everything, awful nights and awful sleep and awful days, energy and all those encompassing misery. Why go on? Why does anyone go on? What's the point? I can't see a future. I'm hopeless, helpless. I'm depressed. Psychiatric diagnoses are very imprecise. Diagnoses in psychiatry are important, but I want to urge you not to deal with them as a straitjacket to prevent effective treatment or the use of medications and therapies that may have only narrow regulatory approvals, even in the face of extensive research and usage worldwide. Both the DSM-5 and the ICD-11 are tools to help diagnosis and aid treatment, not to define what a person suffering shouldn't be treated with. Okay, a psychiatrist presented with the following list of symptoms, four legs, furry and feeds on dog food, would diagnose dog by consensus committee. This is a psychiatric diagnosis of a dog. But it could be somebody else eating those foods. It could be a fox, it could be a person, it could be anybody. Psychiatric diagnosis is not hard and fast, but it's important to understand the important factors within it. I want to introduce you simple models for understanding depressive disorders in particular. Depression is what you have when you just can't snap out of a bad mood. It doesn't have to make sense, but when people are depressed, they all try to make sense of it. Why me? Why now? Why is it happening? It doesn't have to have a trigger, but it might have one. It could be a reaction to what's going on in people's lives. They are systemic issues and they're systemic illnesses and they affect the whole body. They affect your immune system, your sleep, your waking, your appetite, your weight. Metabolic processes, everything. Depression is a whole body disease, not just a disease of the mind. I like to refer to the baseball bat sign of depression. You know you're depressed when somebody makes those very unhelpful suggestions that folks try to jolly you out of being depressed. Just build a bridge and get over it. Turn that frown upside down. Worse things happen at sea, etc. Try not to do those things. They are totally unhelpful. And that's when most depressed people would like to take to you with a baseball bat. Mood disorders include the bipolar affective disorders of the various types, types one through six, I think we're up to. Major depressive disorder with or without melancholia, organic mood syndromes, withdrawals, including intoxication, adjustment disorders, dysthymia or being chronically low, and both bereavement, both normal and abnormal. But serious mood changes also may be part of trauma and anxiety disorders. Post-traumatic stress disorder, generalised anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic, social phobia, 
somatization, somatization disorders, attention deficit disorders, and eating disorders are all, all affect your mood and may present with depression. Other depressive imposters and co-conspirators that all can affect us sleep as well are the organic syndromes and neurodegenerative disorders. We see many people with Parkinson's and other neurodegenerative disorders who are depressed and for which it's part of the syndrome. Alcohol and recreational drugs, OCD, grief, psychosis, and something we see a lot of at Wilcock, narcolepsy. All can present as depression. And sometimes the sleep and fatigue problems of a patient is complaining about are analogues for their depressive symptoms. Sometimes people see their depression in terms of feeling tired. Depressive and sleep symptoms are also part of every age and every stage and all developmental issues. Specific groups have specific issues. It's beyond my scope to be able to go through them all here, but with kids, you worry about attentional issues and somatic symptoms. In adolescence, we look at sleep phase delay. With developmental delay, including autism, we look at things like free-running sleep cycles. Gender, gender identity and sexuality are important. Ethnocultural and spiritual issues are important for many people. The elderly, the young old and the old old all present differently with depression and uh, segue into other uh, degenerative disorders. Neurodegenerative disorders and um, disability also impair your sleep and also impair your ability to maintain circadian function. We all know about sundowning and the loss of the normal rhythm of sleep that occurs in dementia. The sleep aspects are modified according to all of the above. And we need to consider the concept of sleep phenotype. In other words, there are people in the community who are congenital long sleepers. The average sleeper sleeps maybe seven and a half, eight hours a night if left to sleep freely and not constrained by uh, the need to work or to get up for kids or what have you. Some people can get by on five hours a night and actually pro uh, do well and feel good. Others need nine or ten hours and that's associated with other problems in, in their health. But some people are just wired that way. Some people are morning people, so the so-called larks. There is genetic preponderance in families of larks and you also have families of owls, people who stay up late at night and that's when they're most comfortable. And it does affect their presentation with mood disorders. Sleep is also modified by the season. We sleep longer in winter and shorter in summer. Our circadian system is set by morning light, temperature and also by reactions to the environment we're in. The characteristics of depressive disorders. I think we know those symptoms and I've just listed them there for completeness. Okay, sleep characteristics in depression and mood disorders. People suffering from depressive mood disorders complain of not sleeping. They struggle to rest, they, to clear their busy brain. They worry, they go over things, they turn down their alarm system and they complain that they don't feel that they are getting enough sleep or that they're sleeping too much. Their sleep is disrupted or fragmented or unrefreshing. They wish they could sleep more, they wish they could sleep less, they wish that they could awaken refreshed. They may lie awake tossing and turning, behaviourally programming themselves not to sleep. They may wake up early in the morning, particularly with melancholic depression, ruminating, unable to resolve any of their worries or get those worries out of their head. 
as you're aware, between the hours of four and six, your frontal lobes don't work particularly well. And so whatever you're worrying about, you're not doing your best job of resolving that at that time. The other thing that is very important in this population is the concept of sleep misperception. People misperceive whether they're awake or they're asleep. It's important to understand the difference in sleep uh, stages. When people are in uh, N1 sleep or light early sleep, if you talk to them, they will respond and they will remember that they have responded to you. If you say, love, are you awake? And they say, yes, I'm awake, they are still asleep. In stage two sleep, people will respond, yeah, yeah, and they probably won't remember. Only in stage three sleep, which slides into slow wave sleep, that rest restorative sleep, do people become completely unresponsive. And during dreaming sleep, people will incorporate things from their environment in their dreams. And so sometimes they will hear sounds from outside and they will be occurring inside the dream. If you look at people's sleep EEG, when they're in REM sleep, it doesn't look very different to when they're fully awake. People's brains are very active during REM sleep. Mood disorders overlap and interact with all the common sleep disorders, including obstructive sleep apnea and all the uncommon sleep disorders. They overlap with all the neurodegenerative disorders and have special issues like REM sleep behaviour disorder. They overlap with all the trauma-related disorders and the hyperarousal associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, and the fragmented sleep and the changes in REM sleep. They overlap with grief and loss and change and the reactions to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in love, life and work. In fact, depressive people are right when they say they didn't sleep properly. We can show that even when you have them in the lab and they are actually asleep, the vigilant centres in their brain are still awake. These are the people who say, I didn't sleep a wink last night. They slept, but they didn't feel like they slept. Okay, other characteristics of depression. Depression can present as insomnia. Insomnia can be divided into initial insomnia, which is characterised often by anxiety and fear of going to sleep, for fear that the depression will recur in the morning, or worry about things that have happened during the day, unresolvable ruminating thoughts. It could be middle insomnia. They can't stay asleep, despite how many sheep they count. Or terminal insomnia, which doesn't mean they're going to die from it, although there is a condition where that happens, um, where they develop early morning waking and they ruminate, and that's a pathognomonic of melancholic depression. People may also become hypersomnic, which is particularly important, that is they sleep too much in atypical depression, and people sleep to avoid doing anything or confronting issues that are worrying them. We also see an increased rate of parasomnias and complications including um, things like hypnic jerks and sleep paralysis, REM sleep behaviour disorder, and the, the common underdiagnosed restless leg syndrome which ruins many people's sleep and drives many people to distraction. And also the slow wave sleep disorders like sleepwalking and sleep talking, sleep eating and even sexomnia. Other characteristics you see mimic sleep-wake schedule changes. Some people with depression look like they have jet lag. Sometimes they've travelled and it's upset their rhythm and they are operating on a different time, but sometimes they operate as if they're operating on a different time. This is particularly important in adolescents who the normal part of adolescence is you develop delayed sleep phase. You stay up late 
remember when we were young and how the party didn't get started till 10 or 11 o'clock at night and we would party well into the night. And as you hit adulthood, this seems less and less attractive. This is a normal part of adolescence, but adolescents who are becoming depressed start like that and often then turn day into night and night into day, and it's a sign of severe depression. We also see characteristics of normal circadian rhythms that are distorted by the world we live in, by artificial lights, by devices, and by seasonal changes. Normal sleep, and the changes of sleep occur right through from, from infancy when we sleep, you know, 16 hours a night and do little else, through to childhood where we sleep 8 to 10 hours, through adolescence where we sleep 8 hours, and do into older age when we may sleep and only need to sleep 6 or 7 hours. We've already discussed the N1 and N3, that is the stages of sleep 1 to 3, and REM sleep or dreaming sleep. The concepts you need to understand also are the ultradian and the circadian drive. So the ultradian drive is the drive that says you need to go to sleep, you're tired. It's actually measurable and mediated by adenosine as one of the factors that measures. You need to develop sleep pressure which forces you to go to sleep. The circadian drive on the other hand is how you reset your sleep cycle to the, by light first thing in the morning. It's important to also understand that slow wave and sleep is a crucial part of your sleep cycle. It's when you do your best in terms of rest, restitution and rebuilding your brain and clearing out um, cellular debris. You're, far, you're four times more efficient in slow wave sleep at night cleaning out your brain than you are in wakefulness. So get some practical measures. I want to talk about diagnosis, investigation, management, the importance that safety comes first, some general measures, and specific non-drug sleep therapies that also help depression. To treat the depression and simultaneously help the sleep. How thoughts have changed. When I was a young psychiatry trainee, we believed firmly that you treated depression and that the sleep problems would get better by themselves. We were wrong. You need to treat both at the same time. So, you have a patient before you you think might be depressed. The first issue which I must always impress you with is the idea of safety. It comes first. Is this person a risk of suicide or death by neglect? You have to ask yourself, what does this depression have the effect on themselves, their families and you? And remember that suicidal thoughts are common in severe depression. It's appropriate, you need to ask about their motivation, their desires, their plans and the accessibility of any means they might have to kill themselves. This is a hugely important issue in terms of treating depression. And I want to impress upon you a couple of other important things. When you are worrying about this, beware the sudden improvement in a patient. Suddenly you think your antidepressants are working well, you're a brilliant doctor and you've got getting them better. The patient says, I'm fine now doc, everything's good. And many of them will exhibit what we refer to as a beatific smile. Be afraid, be very afraid. That person needs to be watched very, very closely. They are likely to have made a firm decision to kill themselves and are just looking for an opportunity. So if you're asking yourself, is someone depressed? Then they probably are. If you think they're at risk, then please act. So when we're evaluating somebody for depression, we look for features of melancholia, particularly the diurnal mood variation, 
That is, they get worse in the morning and better as the day goes on. And early morning waking, where people wake at four or three in, and ruminate on problems they can't, uh, they can't resolve. Physically, when you see them, look at their forehead. People who are depressed have a particular wrinkle in their forehead, which we refer to as the omega sign. Look at for psychomotor retardation, which is harder to discern in some medical conditions like Parkinson's. And ask the most important things, are you enjoying yourself? When was the last time you enjoyed yourself? Anhedonia is the cardinal symptom of depression. But you look at the loss of their drives, the drive to do anything, their libido, their sense that they can do anything, that they can finish anything, and that they can concentrate. And it's important in my particular population to look at folks who come in with a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia. These are very hard symptoms to, put, to, to understand and need many sessions all by themselves. Also think of the concepts like neurasthenia and somatisation as symptoms akin to depression. And when you're dealing with patients in this mode, think in terms of rehab. Okay, depression seldom occurs all by itself. There are quick screens like the Cheer Index by, from David Castle and Mal Hopwood, which may make it easier just to recognise it. But I think a lot of it is clinical suspicion. The general principles of treatment are straightforward. Engage the patient empathically. And if you have time and are able to let them talk, let them talk. If you don't, refer them to someone who has time to let them talk. Establish a connection if you're able. Think of the patient as a whole person and where they're at, in, at with whom in their life. Tailor their treatment accordingly. You need to exclude and treat and investigate concomitant illness and life circumstances. You need to screen for common causes, contributors and complications. General investigations, which I'll list later. And if you can establish specific sleep symptoms and sleep patterns, all the better. Okay, try and establish a sleep phenotype in that situation. Educate the patient about depression and about sleep and point them to quality sites. Encourage them in healthy sleep behaviours, including exercise, diet and healthy sleep. Basic tests are self-evident, electrolytes, liver functions, etc. I in particular like to stress do iron studies. Further tests where they're warranted. It's not standard even for us to automatically do a sleep study. Now, you're treating patients, use effective treatment and start with the basics. As far as treating their sleep problems, get them to bed and help them to feel better. Everyone knows about healthy sleep behaviours, previously called sleep hygiene. I won't detail them now. Get them to exercise, particularly in the morning, which we know has effects on improving sleep and improving mood. Get them into the bright light in the morning and darkness at night without devices. Talk to them about their mood and focus on their recovery. Introduce them to psychological therapies and start with really simple things like relaxation training and pleasant event scheduling. You know, pick something every day that you're going to enjoy and do it every day. And more formalised therapies, which are beyond my scope here. You should engage behavioural sleep therapy. I discussed a thing called Marita therapy, which was the effect of making people less depressed by sleep depriving them. Um, which is a long and interesting story, which we will cut. Um, sleep consolidation and bed restriction aim to improve sleep efficiency and consolidate sleep, and by doing that, reduce patient anxiety. Distraction and anxiety management, including paradox therapy in insomnia, are some of the simple techniques you can use. 
Paradox therapy works in a very simple way. You basically ask the patient to try to stay awake. Focus on a dot on the wall or on the ceiling and try and stay awake. Don't let yourself go to sleep. Don't let yourself go to sleep. Don't let yourself go to sleep. They very often do. Effective treatment of mood disorders in their sleep. Investigate and treat any underlying medical issue. Choose effective treatments. Use antidepressants you know in adequate doses for adequate times. Give people six weeks of trial. And tailor the side effects to treat the sleep disturbance. The drug mechanisms to do that, we do by blocking histamine, modifying or potentiating GABA, increasing or potentiating melatonin, blocking orexin, or promoting slow-wave sleep. The other drug mechanisms which you can use to wake people up, we can use stimulants. We can use wakefulness agents like modafinil. We can use noradrenaline, and people inadvertently use steroids. All right, I'd like to talk about some useful models that are helpful in an explanatory way for patients. I like to use cortisol. It's a simple model. It's something we can measure easily and we understand intuitively as doctors. As you know, cortisol um, levels go down as the day progresses. They go down and as you head into night, your cortisol levels are very low. As you go through the night, your cortisol levels continue to drop. And this is if you're not stressed and you're not otherwise challenged physiologically. Until about 3 or 4 a.m., when suddenly the difference between the background temperature triggers and your internal temperature triggers the release of cortisol and you get the cortisol surge. Two or three hours later, you wake up feeling like you've had a good night's sleep. But there are exceptions to this. And the two exceptions that are important in this context are with depression and with anxiety. As you know, if you are anxious, your background levels of cortisol stay up. They never dip. And so if you have that surge of cortisol early in the morning, which warms your body up and wakes you up, it's too low a level to be seen above the background level of cortisol. So you wake up still feeling like you haven't slept well. If you are depressed, and particularly with melancholic depression, people lose the cortisol surge and so it doesn't happen at all. Again, they wake up feeling like they haven't had a good night's sleep and it's only as they get going through the day that their mood starts to pick up. This is something which also explains insulin resistance and some of the other issues that people see in depression um, and chronic stress. And it's a model a lot of patients like and a lot of doctors find easy to use. We look at environmental triggers as part of the model. It goes to the purpose of sleep. Why do we sleep? We sleep to conserve resources. We sleep to rebuild our body. It's triggered by light and temperature. You have to get cool to sleep. You have to cool your brain to go to sleep. It enables us to conserve resources. And in some ways, it's like a daily hibernation cycle. This is more acute when you see people with depression, particularly seasonal affective disorder, which looks a lot like bears hibernating and some of the physiological changes it causes. Other quick models to understand, understanding histamine, which is a general all-purpose wide-awake neurotransmitter. Histamine wakes you up. Most of our sleeping tablets operate by blocking histamine, modifying how that general inhibitor GABA works, or latterly by blocking the action of orexin. Now, one, another model that's important to understand is melatonin. And melatonin secretion. Melatonin is 
in many ways the substance of darkness. What melatonin tells you is that it's dark and if, if you need to sleep during the dark then you should be asleep. Diurnal animals like humans go to sleep when given melatonin. It cools our brains and, and triggers sleep. In nocturnal animals it wakes them up and they go foraging. So it's basically a trigger for darkness. The, the trick to trigger melatonin is to dim the lights and to help cool your core body temperature down. These are the things that help people get to sleep. And so it's a very easy model for patients to get their head around. Important to understand when we're treating depression and all of these things, the final common pathway is to stimulate brain-derived neurotropic factor. This is brain fertilizer and all antidepressant moves, both physical treatments, psychological treatments, medication treatments, all result in your brain growing and changing back to normal levels, hopefully restoring normal connectivity. There's the usual list of neurotransmitters and pretty much everything's important in the regulation of sleep and depression. Now to drugs, which everybody wants to think about. We have a series of hypnotic drugs that we use. The Z drugs and the benzodiazepines all act as GABA modifiers. They potentiate the action of the inhibitory process associated with GABA. Antihistamines, which includes most of the, anti, the sedative antidepressants and all of the sedative antipsychotics, block histamine and effectively make you hungry and put you to sleep, which is part of the problem with a lot of antipsychotics and a lot of antidepressants. These days we also have access to orexin blockers. Suvorexant is the one that's available here and Lemborexant, which is in phase two or phase three trials here. Um, we have access to melatonin and the melatonergic antidepressants in Australia, agamelatine is the only one we have. And latterly people have had access to cannabinoids. Just as an aside with cannabinoids, the understanding of how they are important in triggering sleep is still a work in progress. Um, so I'm not at the point where I can recommend them for use as a, as a hypnotic yet. Although we do know that they work and people do use them in that space. In terms of antidepressants, as you know, there is about nine available classes of antidepressants in Australia. And in general, in order to help people sleep, we exploit their antihistaminergic activity. I think it's important to mention a couple of drugs in particular, um, including metazapine. Um, most people think of metazapine as a fairly sedative antidepressant. Uh, it's a mixed antidepressant. And unfortunately, people misuse it, thinking large doses of it are more sedative. Metazapine is actually unique in that it has paradoxical dosing. Very small doses of metazapine are very effective at getting people to sleep, well below effective anti-anxiety doses or effective antidepressant doses, which usually are 15, 30, 45 or above. 7.5 milligrams of metazapine is a very effective way of getting some people to sleep and very useful in managing depression. Agamelatine, on the other hand, potentiates melatonin and normalises sleep, but doesn't act as a hypnotic. Uh, important little things. General rule, prescribe and time dosages to take advantage of their side effects um, and use their main actions over time. As you know, all antidepressants take three or four weeks minimum to actually have an antidepressant effect. Most antidepressants, but not all, um, diminish REM, but this is not actually the mechanism by which they work as antidepressants. Uh, it is important, however, in terms of some of the side effects. 
Okay, and then we have mood stabilizers that we use in managing depression, which act as sedatives in various ways, but also to normalize people's sleep rhythms. I've listed lithium valproate, carbamazepine, lamotrigine. Uh, lamotrigine and topiramate are both glutaminergic drugs. And we also use, of course, antipsychotics like olanzapine as nighttime sedation. Okay, these are very standard usages most people are well aware of. Okay, so coming to the end of our talk, I would like to sort of remind you to suspect and investigate if you think somebody is depressed and exclude at all times any other organic component to the depression. When we're looking at sleep and looking at depression, we need to treat both at the same time. But we need to treat that in a safe manner and be mindful of the risk of suicide. We need to understand the processes and help educate the patient to understand themselves and their sleep and to give them some simple tools to manage those. Uh, we need to direct them to quality information. Sites like the NIMH site or the Sleep Help Foundation uh, site here or Black Dog site or uh, Beyond Blue site are all good sources of information that are authoritative for patients. And we, when prescribing for sleep, not only do we need to use the non-drug behavioural methods, but if we are prescribing medication, then we need to exploit the side effects as well as the primary action of the drug to provide effective care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.